Before I begin, I want to just give you a, a preview, sort of, of what happens in Matthew's 20, Matthew 24 and 25, just context, because I'll be preaching on Matthew 25 today. But in Matthew 24 and 25, it's speaking of the end time, the second coming of Christ. And so you see the beginning, the headings in your Bibles, signs of the end of the age, the day and hour unknown, then chapter 5, the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, where again the master's away and he comes, and then the sheep and the goats on that final day. So those two chapters are written to speak of Christ's second coming, and we find ourselves then in Matthew 25, which speaks of Christ's second coming. Now, one thing that's really important is, is not only do we look forward to that, that last day when he comes again, but also, as Christians, we know that Christ doesn't just wait to show up way back in, in the future. As Christians, we know he'll show up today. He'll show up in the preaching, in the absolution, the Lord's Supper. Christ is constantly breaking into our world, breaking into our lives to change us, to grab us, to, to forever change who we are to direct our path. So, so we look forward to that final day, but we're also looking forward for today when Christ might break into our lives. In some ways, if I, what I just said there, um, this whole little part is in, in, in black preaching, this is called the, the hiccup. You know, this is just the beginning. It's the, okay, now let's get going. <laughs> but I want to pray first, so let's pray. Holy and gracious Father, break into our lives right now. Send Christ into our into our, our lives. Um, do a work right now. Grab us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do any of you fear sleeping in past a deadline? Yeah? Yeah? As a pastor, I have two great fears. One is, and I have these dreams all the time about these two things. The first is I'm standing in front of a whole congregation of people, more than I've ever been in front of, and I have my seminary professor, I think I've told some of you this, my seminary professor's there in the front row, and, the, and I have no sermon. <laughs> and they're all just going, this is what we taught you in seminary? I mean, so that's, I'm not kidding, I have this dream often. It, well, it is a nightmare. It happens on Saturday nights, which is even the worst part of it. But the second dream is, is that, the, that I don't wake up for, for a church on Sunday. And that's always a nightmare as well. And, and in fact, it happened to me once on internship. I was in charge of the service. We had a guest preacher, but I was supposed to open the church, turn on the heater, get everything ready, and then um, the preacher would do the service, the preaching, and I would just assist for communion. I remember waking up on that Sunday, and I was so relaxed, and I felt so good. I looked over at the clock, and it was 8 o'clock, and that's when the service was supposed to begin. And I went, oh, you know. And <laughs> I remember thinking I should run quickly to the church, but then I thought, my hair sticking straight up and not shaved, people would have thought I was out all night. <laughs> so I got in the shower, I shaved, I, I nicked myself all up. I don't know what was worse. It probably would have been better coming, uh, you know, the way I was before. But I got in there, and it was 8.40, you know, when I got there. And it was funny, because I opened the door, and I walk in, and it's right when the ushers are bringing forward the offering. And so I walked in, grabbed it, put on the, the altar there, sat down like nothing was the matter, you know. <laughs> and I'm so thankful that that preacher at least ran the whole service, so it was great. But, but I have to say, since that time, 
I've been deathly afraid of sleeping on a Sunday. I have a deal with my parents that if I don't call them by 7.30 on Sunday morning for them to call me. <laughs> Even more, my alarm clock is turned up so loud that I swear it could wake the dead. You know, and Jamie can't stand it because ah, 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 on Sunday morning, but that's how it is. It, it goes off in order to wake me up. I don't want to sleep in. That's what our reading today is about. It's meant to be an alarm. Now, it's not meant to be alarming, but it is meant to be an alarm. It's meant to wake up a church that has slept, a church that has fallen asleep waiting for Christ. You have to understand, especially from our Thessalonians reading, you have these Christians who expected Jesus to come back in a few years. You know, it's been 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and think, Jesus, where are you? You're supposed to return. A number of us have died. We're waiting for you. And they wondered if Christ was ever coming back. And over the years, people have wondered the same. And, and over those years, people have gotten tired. They've gotten tired of waiting. And they've fallen asleep. And so these words are written for a church community that's, that's fallen asleep. They've gotten tired. And so it's written in a way that's supposed to be like an alarm clock. It's supposed to wake us up. And so the language is very strong. Be alert or have enough oil in your lamps so the light doesn't run out. Or the door is shut. You don't want to be in darkness. Or keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Right? These, these words are strong words. They're, they are meant to wake us up. And I think in many ways we as, as Christians need to wake up. I mean, the church in America has grown tired. I mean, all of us have grown tired. We live in a, 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 a tired time. I mean, we're overextended because of work, overextended because of family, and we're overextended, so we're physically tired. But spiritually, we're tired as well. We're not even thinking about Christ's coming. We're just trying to get some rest and some sleep and to, to get re renewed. We're not thinking. We, we, when was the last time you thought about Christ's coming? Well, maybe Tuesday night with the election. No, just kidding. <laughs> Right, you have all those lousy jokes going on, so I had to throw that in there. But we don't think about Christ's coming. I, in fact, the idea of Christ's coming scares most of us, and I know it scares probably all of us. I mean, I'm reminded of what Stephen Brown, the joke he'd say. He'd say, you know, as a pastor, I go up to people, and he wouldn't actually do this, but the joke is, the pastor says to you, I have good news and bad news. The good news, you're going to heaven. The bad news, you're going tomorrow. Right? Now, why is that bad news? If we're going to be with Christ, that's not bad news. But yet we hear it as bad news. Why? Because we've fallen asleep. We're not thinking about Christ coming. We're not anticipating Christ coming. We're not excited for Christ coming. Instead, we're scared to death. Instead of being an alarm clock to wake us up, we hear these words as alarming, as, as a conviction so much that it, it actually scares us. I remember a pastor preaching on this passage, and I remember him saying in these words, he said, you better be ready because Christ is coming and he's ticked off. I mean, that's frightening. Or my, my wife, Jamie, who grew up in a church where they as a young child, she watched all those Left Behind videos of, of being raptured up. And so she's eight years old or seven years old, and she's watching cars, and the person pops out of the car and, 
and there's crashes and fires and all these things. It scared her to death. She didn't want to talk about that anymore. It frightened her. It became alarming. That's not what this passage is supposed to do. It's not meant to say, you better be prepared or else. That's not how it works. This isn't about an alarming sermon. But it is meant to be an alarm, to wake us up. Jesus isn't trying to scare the hell out of us. That's not what he's doing in this passage. Even more, to read the passage in this way is to miss the gospel entirely. If, if, if all one has to do is be ready by having their lamp filled with oil, which is good works, then why would you need Jesus? Why would you need forgiveness from Jesus if, if it's simply about doing the good things? You can't read it that way. The gospel doesn't work that way. In fact, how, how gracious are those wise virgins in this parable? Here they have extra oil. And when they see their brother in need, what do they say? Go out and get We're not going to share with you. I mean, how terrible is that? I can see their logic, right? Let's get at least five of you out of the picture. So then there's only five to choose from. That's not really how it's working. But... You can't read it that way as a moral example because the morality doesn't add up. They're not very loving in this passage. This is not about doing enough good works so that when Christ comes, your lamp will be filled. That's to miss the point of the parable entirely. The point of this parable is verse 6. And verse 6 says this, At midnight the cry rang out, and the cry was, here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Isn't that a wonderful word? Right, what you've been waiting for? He's finally arrived. The party's about ready to begin. The bridegroom's here, what you've been waiting for, this, this wonderful feast, a wedding banquet. It's begun. Disneyland has arrived. That's the language, right? And yet these words cause panic for those foolish virgins. They're not excited by this idea. Instead, they're alarmed by these words. Well, who were these foolish virgins? They're not quite as foolish as you might think. I mean, and I really do mean this. Most Jewish weddings occurred in the afternoon. It wasn't the evening. And so the idea to have a lamp at all would be... Very practical. Even more, since the weddings occurred in the afternoon, you wouldn't want to carry a lamp and extra oil. That would be overkill. You would just simply want a lamp filled with enough oil so that you can maybe find your way back a little bit. But that's it. You know, for ladies, when you go to an event, a nice dinner party, a nice wedding, you bring the big purse, fill with everything, I'm married now. I know how this works. <laughs> or you bring that the small purse that matches your dress that has just enough. That's how you go. It would be ridiculous to bring the large bag. You might keep it in your car. <laughs> but you're not going to go to the event with it. And so, so the, the foolish virgins are prudent. They're wise. They're, their wisdom is the wisdom of this world. The wise ones, though, they're the ones who are sort of overbearing, overpacked. 
They're not wise by the world's standards. They're showing up at the wedding, and they're kind of clunky. They have a lamp. They have a bag. They probably have a backpack on the back. And more things. It's, it's, it, they're overpacked. And we know how that works. I remember as a boy growing up, and my mom, I'd go on these Cub Scout events. And most kids would have their canteen because it said, you know, you're going to hike in your canteen. But not Marie's son. I had a canteen, which was the biggest one a person could buy, you know, weighed me down like this. But to balance me out, my mom made sure I had two or three more gallons of water in my pack. And they're wondering why I was always the slowest one. And the water was like frozen, so half the day you couldn't drink it, but she wanted her son to have cold water. So I hear I'm dying of thirst in the first half with too much weight. <laughs> I can't pour any out because it's all frozen. Totally overpacked, totally clunky. No wonder I gave up scouting by the time I became a Boy Scout. It's too much work. That's the, those are the wise virgins in this parable. Overpacked, clunky, not wise by the world's standards. However, there's something that goes wrong in the parable. And there's always something that seems to go wrong with God. You know, he's always showing up at the wrong time. In the parable, the wedding doesn't begin in the afternoon. It goes off and, and the banquet starts, the arrival happens at midnight. And they've burned through, the, the wise ones by the world's standards have burned through all their oil. They have nothing left. Whereas the clunky ones, they're the ones who have extra oil, at least enough for themselves. These foolish ones thought they were so wise, so put together. They looked so good. They thought they had enough. But they didn't. They weren't prepared. They weren't prepared for that sudden arrival. And so when the bridegroom came, they panicked. And I think this makes sense for all of us. I mean, how many of you have had a guest pop in at the last minute? Right? They're calling, hey, we're going to show up in five minutes. And what happens? Suddenly you're running around the house, you open the one closet, and you're just throwing everything in there, right? And when I was newly married, I didn't understand this. I'm like, who cares? I was sitting on the couch, you know, while Jamie's running around. I, don't, I learned my lesson. <laughs> Men only do that once, right? No, the guest's coming up. You better make sure the bathroom's clean. You better make sure the kitchen's clean. Whatever dishes you have in the sink, you're throwing in the, in the, dishing, the washing machine. You're trying to fill this thing up. You're filling it more than it's physically possible. Then you start opening the, the oven door and put the other pants. <laughs> I mean, you know how this works. All the kids' toys go in the closet. I mean, this is how it works, right? And when you have kids, it just gets worse and worse. You're panicked. Why? Because you want to make a good impression. You want to, to look right. That's what those foolish virgins were doing. They're panicked. But I have a question. What happens if the person dropping in on you is not some guest or not some acquaintance, but what happens if that person dropping in on you is your best friend? The person who knows you well, knows everything about you, the person who loves you deeply, the person that you can be honest in front of. What happens if they call five minutes before? What happens then? Yeah, who cares? <laughs> ah, you might fix it a teeny bit. Yeah, I mean, we all do a little bit. I mean, 
But who cares? It's your friend. It's your best friend. They've been with you in the worst of times. So what? The problem in this parable, and I want you to get this part. The problem in this parable is that the foolish virgins are foolish not because of their lack of preparing. They're foolish because they thought they could present themselves in the right way. They were so worried about presenting themselves in the right way that they know nothing of the bridegroom. They don't know how loving, how kind, how wonderful that bridegroom is who's Christ. They've totally missed the boat. They're expecting some judge to come instead of a savior. They don't understand that, that the bridegroom, they don't understand that the bridegroom must delay because that's what he does. If you remember 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. They understand that, of course, Christ is going to come late because he's waiting. He's waiting for more people to come in. And what they don't understand also is that with Christ, it's not some party in the afternoon. It's a party that goes on and on and on. It's a good party. Remember, Jesus turned water into wine. Why? To make the party go. They're out of good stuff. Let's give them the best stuff. Let's let the party go for days. Because he's not interested in a little afternoon brunch. He's after a feast. A good feast. And even more, they don't understand that they don't even need the lights to begin with. Jesus is the light of the world. And if he's going to request oil in their lamps, he's going to put the oil there. And I guarantee he comes with enough oil with himself to provide for them. Do you remember in the Old Testament the story of Elisha and the widow who was hungry and didn't have enough food and they thought they were going to take away my sons? And Elisha said... Tell your sons to get as many jars as they can find to fill oil up. And then from your canister of oil, start filling in these oil canisters. And they had no oil, and yet when they poured it, they came up with 10 jars of oil, enough to sell keep the widow to keep her sons. And that's how God works, right? Give me, give me five loaves and two fish. Feed 5,000 and have 12 leftover bags full. So God works. Don't they understand that about God? Don't they understand that about the bridegroom? No, they don't. They're so afraid of, of presenting themselves right that they've missed the, the picture altogether. And well, we, we can't blame them. We're the same way. The economy goes, goes south, and what happens? Ugh! You know, we wonder if God's led us out to Egypt to be buried in the wilderness. You know, things go bad. There's not enough. Really? Five loaves, two fish? Or in our own lives? I have too much sin in my life? There's no way. I'm not clean enough to present myself to Christ. Well, you never were. Christ is the bridegroom who comes and takes care of everything. But I have, I have too many doubts, too many sins, too many pains. I can't show up there. I'm not dressed well enough. As if Christ won't cover you, his bride. As if Christ didn't die on the cross for you. Nothing to be afraid of. 
It's midnight. The bridegroom's coming. The party is beginning. I mean, that's the word for us today. Those foolish virgins are foolish because they're trying to present themselves to Christ on their own merits. They don't know Jesus at all. And so what does Jesus do to that? He shuts the door on that thinking. This is God's final no to the foolish wisdom of the world. In the death of Jesus, he closes forever the way of winning, the the right-handed prudential road to the kingdom. Instead, God is saying yes to all the silly little girls with their Clorox bottles filled with oil, all the neurotics of faith, all the wise fools who are willing to trust him in their lastness, lostness, leastness, and death. Those are the ones who've gone into the party. And all those bright, savvy types who thought they had it figured all out, they're the ones who are outside in the dark with no oil and even less fun. I love that part. And so in the outside, what do they say then when the door is shut? Sir, sir, literally, Lord, Lord. And you remember back to what he said in Matthew when Jesus said, remember, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who does the will of the Father in heaven. And what's the will of the Father? How do we do the will of the Father? Remember in John, what is it? To believe the Son, to trust the Son, to trust that he's enough. That's to do the will of the Father. That's to have enough oil in your lamp. And so don't go running around trying to present yourself to Christ. Don't go thinking that you have to fill up with all these good works in order for Christ to shine on you. Instead, rejoice. Because the bridegroom's coming. And he has enough oil and enough clothes and enough food and enough good works for you. That's the message on this passage. So Reformation... Guess what? Night is advancing. We know that. We feel the pains of this world. We've grown tired in our faith. What God is saying is, wake up! Especially the men at the first service, you know, you get a little tired. So, wake up! Not so that you might prepare yourselves, but instead, wake up! Because Disneyland's coming, and what God's bringing is better than Disneyland. He's bringing salvation and eternal life and rides on the back of lions. Can't wait for that day. So wake up and rejoice. Christ is coming. I almost want you to say he's coming indeed. Christ is coming. He's coming indeed. In Jesus' name, amen.